promise one thing, we're heading in the wrong direction. We were of the opinion that if this was another failed cop, that there would be no more cops. The smallest members of the UN family have a voice and a seat at the table on equal terms. This is The Lid Is On, the UN's flagship news show, with me, Connor Lennon. Oh, and Lara Quinones. <laughs> yes, she's back. Loyal subscribers to The Lid Is On podcast will remember that Lara, my colleague in the news and media division at UN headquarters, co-hosted a daily edition, yes, daily edition of the show in a very noisy room at the COP26 UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. People shouting and sitting on the floor eating their lunch outside. It was, it was lots of fun. So we thought we'd do it all over again in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for COP27, starting on the 6th of November, right through to the, well, hopefully not too bitter end, because it was quite bitter last time, wasn't it? It was pretty bitter. I mean, it was emotional. It had a very, a lot of good things. But Alok Sharmas, the president uh, of, the, of COP26, tears really got to everyone's heart that year. Yeah, it was quite full on. And uh, well, we're looking forward to doing it all over again. I'm, I am anyway. And hopefully end on a more positive note. <laughs> and well, as this is the last show uh, of the Lirisom before we head to Egypt, we wanted to set the scene and give a brief overview of what has been achieved and what has not since the Glasgow Climate Pact. And the best person to help us do that is Selwyn Hart. He's the special advisor of the sec to the Secretary General on Climate Action. Selwyn, um, tell us what is the general mood going into COP given this series of reports uh, that are telling us that we're not doing enough? Thank you, and I'm really grateful to be here with you. I'll be very blunt. The mood is not great. Since Glasgow, we've um, been seeing a series of dire reports basically all telling us one thing, we're heading in the wrong direction. Every indicator on climate is heading in the wrong direction. Global emissions are at their highest level. The gap between what countries need to do to keep the 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement alive and what they're actually doing, unfortunately, that gap remains wide. We're also seeing greater and more devastating and catastrophic climate impacts on every continent, in every country, and in every region. And at just 1.1 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels, half of humanity is already in the danger zone. And if you're living in one of the global hotspots for the climate crisis, Africa, South Asia, Latin America or the Caribbean, or a small island developing state, you're 15 times more likely to die from a climate impact. I honestly wish that I had much better news to tell you about the global response to the climate crisis, but one year after Glasgow, we honestly are falling further and further behind. But the good news is, honestly, that despite the enormity of the challenge of the climate crisis, we know what we need to do. Reduce emissions drastically, invest more in renewable energy. We also need to ensure that we have the tools and instruments to protect people and communities who are on the front lines of the climate crisis. We know what to do and, and we have the tools, the instruments, the finance to do it. The problem is it's not being directed in 
the right places. Well, uh, let's, let's cast our minds back to a year ago. You're from Barbados, which is a small island developing state. You could say it's on the front lines of, uh, of the climate crisis. So I, I'd like to take you, you to take a look at this interview that I did a little earlier with Ilana Seed. She's Palau's ambassador to the UN, and she represented her country in the climate negotiations at COP26. She told me about the atmosphere at the end of the conference when Alok Sharma, the COP president, almost broke down in tears as the final negotiations became increasingly fraught. At the end there, when he was breaking down, I think we were all really, really tired at that point. It was a long couple of weeks of very intense negotiations. and Some very long days as well. Long days, and you know, Alok Sharma, he was so active and he was flying around the world trying to build trust and trying to build the relationships that would actually get this over the line. And so having seen him break down, we knew just how much work and energy and passion he put into it. So at that point, I think we were just kind of waiting. It was just kind of like, this is no longer in our hands. We've done everything we needed to do. We've made our interventions. And it's just up to the larger countries who are still kind of at it to, to figure it out. Was there a feeling in Palau and other small countries, other small island countries, that you were steamrolled into accepting this compromise document? Or were you fine to adopt it? We didn't have a choice. We were of the opinion that if we did not accept and if this was another failed cop, that there would be no more cops. We actually had that conversation that if something fails five times, then it means multilateralism doesn't work for this kind of thing. And it's a lot of money for small countries to go to the cop. It was one of these things where if this is a failed cop, then why do we keep continuing to do it? I mean, I think. We were just glad that it happened. We're not happy per se because we wanted more ambition. We wanted more of an outcome. However, it was a huge step to say that we're finally working together. There was a body of work that we can all kind of work together to implement. And I think that was a huge step forward. I was really struck by the emotion there, the emotions that were swirling around COP26 and, and also the high stakes, the fact that if there wasn't an outcome, that could have been the last ever COP. Did you get that sense when you were there? I've been to a number of cops. I've been listening along, um, you, you know, and I was there in Copenhagen um, in 2009 when the entire regime um, collapsed. Um, so in a real sense, I've seen worse. Um, the reality is that the climate crisis is a complex, is an extremely difficult issue to solve. And there are no really easy or or simple fixes. Um, countries are there defending their national interests. Um, and you know, one can expect um, um, there to be some level of disruption. But the good thing about a multilateral process like this is that a country like mine, Barbados, 300,000 people, Palau, a few thousand folks, they have the same voice as a country like China, India, the United States, or the European Union. And, and that's the beauty of multilateralism, and th that's the beauty of the work under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Were it not for the islands, this 1.5 degree goal, which has now become the benchmark for global ambition, would not be in the Paris Agreement. It was the SIDS that put that 1.5 degree goal on the table way back, since being the small island states, way back in 2008. Back then, you know, I was a negotiator. We were isolated. 
no one supported us. We got the least developed countries on board and then the African countries and some Latin American countries. But back then, we were isolated. And now 1.5, 1.5 is the global benchmark for ambition. So it can be frustrating. There can be setbacks. It's not an easy process. It's a complex process. But the fact that it provides the smallest members of the UN family to have a voice and a seat at the table on equal terms allows us to set a level of ambition or has allowed this process to set a level of ambition that hopefully will not only save them, but will save vulnerable people, marginalized um, individuals in even the rich countries, right? So, so frustrating, but there's no substitute for a multilateral process. Talking about goals, the Egyptian presidency this year, they have said that this COP will be more about implementation than negotiation. So how are all these commitments that they have made in previous COPs, are they gonna be turning to action? What do you think? Do you think it's possible? I definitely believe that it's possible. And um, in our discussions with the Egyptians, we've called it an implementation plus, plus, plus <laughs> conference. Yes, we need to be credible about what we have committed um, through this implementation process, but we also need to recognize that even the current commitments are not enough, right? So we want countries to put the policies and measures in place to implement their nationally determined contributions, the NDCs or the national climate plans. But in the most recent report from the UNFCCCC on the cumulative impact of these nationally determined contributions. They added all the indices together and came up with numbers to determine what that means in terms of the temperature goal. We're still at 2.5 to 2.8 degrees of warming. The yeah. indices don't bring us down to 1.5. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these reports are, are pretty terrifying for most people reading the newspaper or, or looking online who, who are not in government, just regular people, mm. must put the fear of God into so many people. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that it would also be a huge wake-up call, finally, for people who do have power to make a difference, to actually do something. So, of course, as you said, it's a very complicated, difficult process. But do you think that finally these figures, these numbers, could actually make people in power wake up and move faster? They should. In some countries, it's happening. But we need people, right, to put pressure on their political leaders. There, there is, yes, countries are participating in this international process to make international commitments. But they need to be pressured by their citizens who are on the front lines, who are facing the climate crisis. They need to be pressured to be even more ambitious in terms of what they do um, on climate. I'm sure that the leader of XX country, um, he or she needs to respond, will respond better to their people than pressure coming from, from the president of Palau or from the prime minister of Barbados. So we hope that individuals across the world who see these numbers, but also see the impacts, the climate impacts that, that are happening in their own countries, that are happening across the world, that there will be this mass movement 
to ensure that climate is on the ballot in every election, that every leader is held accountable for the commitments that they make on climate, that every business leader, every financial institution is held accountable for what they do, not what they say, but what they do on climate. That every international organization, every international financial organization, including the multilateral development banks, that they are held accountable for what they do and not what they say on climate. Besides all these challenges that we are talking about, this year we had a very special moment at the General Assembly. It was when the majority of countries of the world voted in favor of a resolution that made the right to live in a healthy environment an official universal recognized human right. This resolution and this vote also established the offices of a new special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights in the context of climate change, the first one. His name is Ian Fry. He's from Tuvalu, and he recently delivered his first report to the UN General Assembly. The crucial issue, and, and we're seeing it more and more every day, if you, we think about the, the, the floods in Nigeria and Pakistan, the severe drought that's occurring in Somalia at the moment, people's human rights are being affected as a consequence of climate change. And these are millions of people around the world whose basic enjoyment of human rights are being affected by climate change. We have to make that connection. We, ha we have to put a human face to the climate change. For you, what will be the best outcome of this COP that is coming? I've put forward a number of recommendations in my report. One of them is to, you know, just commence a process to establish this uh, loss and damage fund. We also have to have, you know, a process to ensure greater participation, particularly for civil society, youth, women groups and that, and to open up the COP to these groups to have a better say. I would like to see a revision of the Gender Action Plan. We know that there are critical issues of climate change impacts on women and young people, and those issues need to be brought forward and put forward onto the agenda and action plan developed to address those issues. And finally, do you think there's still a chance to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees? Well, it's a challenge. We're not seeing that, you know, with the, the current nationally determined contributions, the sort of commitments that have been made by countries. We're, we're heading in a pathway towards two to three degrees Celsius. So there has to be a lot more action by countries to reduce their emissions. The complication, of course, is the, the Ukraine war where we're seeing, you know, countries sort of uh, having to find old sources of fossil fuel energy to replace what, what they've been deprived of as a consequence of the Ukraine war. So th that's a problem and, th and that's been a distraction as well. However, there's a good side to it. I think countries are also seeing that the need to be self-sufficient in energy and the cheapest way to be self-sufficient in energy is with renewable energy. And we're seeing uh, Portugal sort of moving towards 100% renewable. We know Denmark's doing that. And I think, you know, that will drive other countries to see the need to be 100% uh, renewable and self-sufficient in their energy. So, Selwyn, do you think that making the right to a healthy environment a human right, is that really going to make a difference in climate negotiations? It brings... Um, spotlight to the intersection between climate and the enjoyment of human rights. You know, you know, when you look at the images, you can see the human toll and the human suffering 
as a result of climate. And the reality is th those regions, countries, and people who have contributed least to the climate crisis, those are the ones who bear the brunt of current and who will bear the brunt of future impacts. So it really just shows the inequality, the unfairness, absolute unfairness of the climate crisis. Well, Selwyn, we would love to talk to you for longer, but I know we have to let you go soon. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, we'll just wrap up with a brief explanation of what we can expect in the coming days at COP27. So after the official launch on Sunday, that's the 6th of November, there'll be a two-day World Leaders Summit, and that's when presidents, prime ministers fly in to give speeches on the crisis. After that, whilst the negotiators are getting to work behind the scenes, we will be into the thematic days. So looking at the first week, we've got finance first, then science, youth, decarbonisation, agriculture, adaptation, loads to get through. And solutions this year. We will have solutions yeah. coming right at the end, um, last but not least. And then the whole thing officially comes to a close on Thursday, November the 17th. But as we all know, like last year, things may change. We ended up hanging around a bit longer, didn't we? Saturday Putting out night, yeah. More podcasts <laughs> until we finally got some kind of a, of a resolution. And if you haven't already, please do like and subscribe to The Lid Is On. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. And we'll have a couple more of these video podcasts as well coming out. And you will find them on the United Nations YouTube channel. So don't miss any of the daily episodes. They're all coming to you from Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt at COP27. See you next week.